Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. My name is Scott Chaloner and you join us on a sunny day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. We'll be joined a little later on in today's show by former Education Secretary and incumbent Leaders' Council Chairman Lord Blunkett. But first and foremost today, I'm delighted to have Mark Abley alongside me. Mark is the Managing Director at Fathom Financial, a financial planner specialised in delivering pension drawdown, frozen pension solutions and general pension advice UK-wide. Mark, very warm welcome to yourself today and thank you ever so much for joining us. Hi. It's real pleasure, pleasure. real pleasure as well, Mark, having you on the airwaves. Um, Whole reason we're here, of course, is to discuss leadership and really bring that into focus. And normally we dive straight into that topic. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I feel it's appropriate that we begin there. Um, I'm sure you'll agree that it has proven to be one of the most significant challenges for leaders of our time. But how has it affected you and your business in the last few months? Um, it, it's, it's been a, a little bit of a challenge. I mean, we've been back in the office for uh, since about the beginning of July, to be fair. Um, but it was just organising the staff, making sure that they could work from home, the communication, um, issues around you know, people being able to with sort of, um, sort of mental health issues and things like that coming to the fore because it, it was, some of them found it really, really difficult. Um, I also found it, as a business, I felt that there was some glue missing. I mean, I know there's lots of talk about people saying, oh, we're going to work from home from now on, or staff are going to be allowed to work from home um, much more than they were previously. And we will probably do that. Um, and, and so that, that's one thing that's, that's come out of it. However, I just felt the glue was missing out of the business. Everything seemed a little bit disjointed. Mm. Um, and actually, as, as I missed your call, Earlier today, Scott, it was because of COVID, because I was having a, a, a Zoom meeting with a couple of our senior people to decide what to do about the Prime Minister's recent announcement. Absolutely. And for the benefit of those tuning into this today, we are recording on the 22nd of September. So Prime Minister Boris Johnson has in the last couple of hours made an address to uh, the House of Commons to outline new COVID-19 restrictions that will be in place nationally. Um, This essentially is pointing toward the fact that there's going to be a little bit of a hangover in restrictions across all sectors, isn't there, uh, Mark, for sure. But also it's certainly pushed forward that case again for more of a wholesale transition towards remote working. It was suspected that we could have a little bit of a hybrid system in future when the office does return in vogue in the next couple of years, if, of course, we do have a vaccine in place by then. But this is really going to accelerate changes in our working practices, and it's possibly going to be in place for quite some time yet. The Prime Minister was saying something like six months earlier today. He did, yeah. Uh, in 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 the uh, when he was in the Commons today, he said it, would, it could be six months, um, and and it's just how we deal with that, Scott. To be fair, um, you, you know, we, we I guess we've shown that we could we can work from home, um, but but it's pretty difficult to you know to, to to move the business along in any way when you're doing that. It you just sort of seem to be treading water, just holding on to what you've got, and. not really in a position to drive the business forward. I mean, we've looked at various different ways in which we can attempt to do that, you know, either digitally using Zoom and whatever. Um, 
but but there is there is a little reluctance from our clients to to do that. Maybe it's just the demographic, um, you know, that, that they're not used to to using sort of technology to communicate in the way that we now want to now have to do it. Really, you know. Um, so I, I think we've been in for an interesting few months, and certainly we we we're sort of consulting with our HR people now to see is it mandatory that we have to work from home? Mm. You know, we're looking into all of the all of the things around that because some of our staff have already proven that it's difficult for them to work from home. It is. It's not a one-size-fits-all approach, is it, for some people who may have sort of bigger houses and no children, for example. It certainly could be um, yeah. something that suits them a lot more, but that's not necessarily the case for lots of other people who may have children that they have to look after as well, that that could be disruptive to their working patterns. They could also have smaller Indeed. accommodation as well, particularly those living in the greater London area. So that's certainly something yeah. that the government does have to uh, consider, and businesses do indeed have to consider when they're assessing how they're going to be managing over the uh, the next few months um even though of course this period and indeed the next few months are likely to continue to be a quite challenging and sensitive time for many people mark um we are trying to find some silver lining in what has been a dark and dense cloud over all of us so in light of that is there anything that you can take away from this pandemic experience that you can say you've learned from all of this and that it's taught you something either about yourself and your own leadership skills or even the resilience of the people that you work with? Yeah, I, I, there are some, there are some definite positives um, that, that have come out of it. Um, thankfully, um, you know, I think it, you, you've got to, you've got to change your management style, if you like, because if you're used to having people in the office and, You've got to bear always bear in mind that you you could be talking to somebody who's in their own home, and that's something that I'm very very conscious about. You know, when I'm when I'm speaking to third parties, when I'm speaking to suppliers to the business, when I'm speaking to our own staff, it, you you've got to be really really careful how you speak to them. I think it, it doesn't matter what you're speaking to them about because they're actually in their own home, and it can be be a little bit mm. of an invasion of their their privacy because it isn't their workplace, it's their home. So that that's something that I've learned to adapt to. Um, I think some of our staff adapted particularly well um, to, to to the working from home regime. Um, but I think generally everybody felt that it, when we got back in the office that things things were better. Um, the other thing that focus we focused on um, was was to 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 speak in, and up the communication to our existing clients. You know, there was a lot of nervous people. We look after a lot of money for, uh, on, on behalf of other people. And it was really just to make sure that we were communicating to them that we're here. If you're worried, you can speak to us. So so those are the positives, I think, that, that came out of it for us. Um, a little bit of a change in style of management. Um, some of our people really worked well um, under their own steam. Admittedly, a couple struggled. Um, but keeping our clients closer to us and letting them know that we were available to them at any time if they were concerned, you know. So that, those would be the positives for me. 
Mm. It is a challenge, isn't it, leading from a distance? And when you are having to do everything remotely, you also have to especially consider, of course, mental health and well-being, not just because, of course, yeah. of all of the disruption and the worry caused by the pandemic, but also the social isolation side of the uh, the whole lockdown as well. Um, just how yeah. important has mental health been in your leadership over the last few months, uh, both in terms of safeguarding your own and also that of those people around you? Well, it, it, it was front and centre, really, at the early part when, when, when the lockdown first started because it was very, very clear to us that we had a couple of people who were struggling. Um, so we, we just made sure that, you, you know, we were avail- available to them. Um, and, you know, some, some of the things that they might have said, we, we were happy just to, to let pass because we knew that they were struggling with things. Um, you know, so it, it, it was, a, you know, paramount importance to us as a business and, and our senior team to make sure that we were we, we were sort of, if you like, looking after our staff as best we could, even though it was remote. Mm, absolutely. And um, I can certainly see where you're coming from, from that point of view, the need to, of course, emphasise that and really have that in the forefront of the mind during a uh, time like this. Um, interestingly as well, leaders have become very self-aware during this period in the sense that a lot of very worried people amid all of the uncertainty have been looking to business leaders for a bit of inspiration and a bit of direction during this time. And it can be quite difficult to provide that and just keep the communication channels open when the information out there isn't always clear. But when you are at the top of the tree running a business and there isn't anybody above you to consult, as it were, when you do need a little bit of inspiration and direction for yourself, Mark, where is it that you tend to look to for it? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, I I guess it's having the responsibility of making sure that everybody else is okay that keeps you going and keeps you focused. Um, You know, making sure that... um, you know, that, that, that we're communicating with staff and, and that sort of gives me a bounce to make sure that they're okay. That, that helps me. Um, and, you, you know, just, just really being focused on communicating as clearly as we possibly can how we see um, see things going and, and looking for some of the positives um, rather than just always focusing on, um, you, you know, the, the, this negativity that's been around us. So, and very difficult to answer <laughs> succinctly, but yeah, just by focusing, keep, keeping the focus on keeping the business going, keeping the clients happy and making sure that all of our staff are, are well. And just thinking about the uh, the next few months in particular, just before we do wrap things up on the programme, Mark, because I am conscious that we are short of time. Um, we know that we are going to have to continue to adjust to this new normal in the way that we live and the way that we work and that restrictions could be in place for quite some time yet, according to the, uh, the Prime Minister's statement today. Mm. But during this sort of next 12 months, what is next for you and for Fathom Financial and where do you hope the business is this time next year? Well, in, in the immediate future, uh, following the announcements today, we just we just need to check what we need to be doing. So whether whether we need to be working from home, whether we can continue in the office. So that's that's the immediate future. Um, I think again, just making sure that we continue with a communication strategy to our clients to make sure that they know that we're here. Um, and I, I, I feel on, that that we we may just end up treading water. Um, over the next six months, just just a, a holding position. Um, I, I would have loved to have thought that, 
you know, that, that, that we could have moved on as a business um, and, and started to grow again. But I think, you know, being, being realistic um, and, and having the experience of, of the sort of previous sort of six months or so, whatever it is, um, I, I think we'll be okay as a business. Um, we'll still have the same number of staff that we have now and hopefully the same number of clients. Um, so we, we're, we're sort of fairly robust as a business. But I actually, I, I, I'm concerned that we won't grow. Um, that, that, that would be my real concern over the next six, possibly even 12 months, you know, that, that, that we'll just end up treading water. Mm. It certainly is going to be a period where growth could well be on the back burner for a lot of businesses. But let us just keep our fingers crossed and hope that businesses do see out this period. And I do certainly wish your business, Mark, all the luck in the world in navigating these next few months. Um, also, just given how enlightening it's been having you join us today to discuss your uh, views on this, I think it would be wonderful to catch up at some point in this next year and have you back on the programme with us just to see how things are coming along at the business at that point in time. And we can just reassess that and exactly what stage we're at as well. Yeah, happy to do that. That would be good. I'd certainly welcome that opportunity, Mark. I've thoroughly enjoyed um, your company on the air today. And most importantly as well, until we do hopefully speak again, please do take care and stay safe with everything still going on in the world too. Okay, thanks, Scott. That's great. I would also reiterate that message to all of our listeners today. Do please continue to look after yourselves and others. It does make a real, real difference in saving lives at this very difficult time. Um, Next up on the programme today, I'm going to be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Leaders' Council Chairman Lord Blunkett, who enjoyed a distinguished political career despite being blind from birth, having served as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years and held a number of senior positions in Tony Blair cabinet. He has been a member of the House of Lords since August 2015 and I do hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with Lord Blunkett himself. That is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected. Mm-hmm. In the circumstances, there are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff. And, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 or all of those who can, Uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able Mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you, and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. 
Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm-hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm -hmm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n- knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care Uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, Uh, but also I think in terms of seeing the 
the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the the UK and um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear right. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead Mm. or people being told that they shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And 
one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real, 
on the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would people criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Um, These kind of things you you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food, a lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be to prolonged? I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. 
there's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation, and that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget, and those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from 
the second week in May on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. 
Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up 
in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm-hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.